Uh, this week we're going to continue our, our series with the seventh beatitude uh, from Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would just take this time and make it your time. Father, I, I know that <clears throat> as I was growing up with my dad, <clears throat> I remember how special it was to have really quality time with my dad. And they didn't happen as often as I wanted them to. <clears throat> but Father, I'm praying for really quality time with you here this morning, Lord God. I pray that you would just reach down and touch the hearts and minds of everyone here, Lord God. That your words would prevail over my words, Lord God. That you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, that that would uh, uh, just permeate all of the, the distractions and all of the things that are preoccupying our thinking right now, Lord God. So, Father, I just pray that you would have your way here this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, let's start with what being a peacemaker is not. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say, uh, blessed are the peace lovers, or the peace... Uh, wishers or the peace talkers. You know, this isn't about passivism. It's not about avoiding strife or conflict. It's not about trying to make light of issues so everybody feels comfortable. <laughs> and that's somehow a definition of peace. Um, so maybe a, a better good working definition of what a peacemaker is <clears throat> is someone who is actively seeking to reconcile people, both to God and to each other. Um, it's important to understand that um, peace in the Bible is always based on justice and righteousness. Peace in the Bible is always based on justice and righteousness. So where justice wins and righteousness rules, there you'll find peace. Amen? So without both these things in place, lasting peace just isn't a realistic proposition at all. Uh, justice and righteousness, by the way, are the very foundation of the throne of God, according to Scripture. <clears throat> um, the Hebrew word for peace is something most of us are familiar with and have heard. It's that word shalom. Uh, it's often used as either a greeting or a farewell, uh, just like saying hello or goodbye. Um, the word itself, it means perfect welfare, serenity, fulfillment, uh, freedom from trouble, trouble <laughs> liberation from uh, 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 hindered uh, contentment. Um, the word maker being matched with it is an action word, like a verb. Uh, meaning to do, create, or develop something. So being a peacemaker, then, is someone who's actively pursuing peace. Uh, to So peacemakers are pursuing right relationships, reconciliation in every aspect of life. Jesus was the perfect peacemaker. 
Uh, he came to establish peace. He, his message explained peace. His death purchased peace. His resurrection presence enabled peace. Prophecy said he would be the prince of peace. The angels announced his birth saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who, uh, with whom he was well pleased. Jesus forgave many with his words saying, go in peace. Just before he was crucified, Jesus' last will and testament, so to speak, was peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives you uh, do I give. Nor uh, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That came from John 14, 27. And when the Lord returned after the resurrection, his first words to the disciples were, peace to you, in Luke 24, 36. Uh, Colossians 1, verses uh, 19 through 20. Um, this is um, uh, the very same word peacemakers utilized by the Apostle Paul to what God has done through Christ so that uh, we could have uh, peace with God. For in him all the fullness of God was well pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. <clears throat> you know, this idea of being a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemaker, it seems like such a simple thing. Uh, it almost, you, you can almost say it matter-of-factly. Of course we're going to bless the peacemaker. Peacemaking is a nice thing, right? <laughs> well, sometimes peacemaking can be a downright difficult thing. Um, I saw an illustration um, that I really liked about what peacemaking is really like. Um, and many of you can probably relate to this in your own life experience. But have you ever gone on a hike and you come up to a creek and it's kind of a fast-moving, kind of wide area, but you can see the continuation of the path on the other side, so you have to go through this quick-running water and you step into it and realize that they're very slippery rocks, right? Anybody experience that? Yeah, I know I have. And so you have this kind of fear <laughs> about stepping out into it, right? And so what happens when you do? Well, sometimes you make it across. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> that's the hope. <laughs> sometimes that doesn't quite happen that way. Some of us are a little more klutzy than others, but we'll just leave that alone. Uh, some of us get wet a little more often than they'd like to, <laughs> namely me. Um, but that's it. It's about sometimes you get wet. Sometimes you fall hard and you get bruised, you get hurt, you know, and that's, that's the way this works sometimes. But when you're a peacemaker, sometimes that vulnerability of being out there creating something that doesn't exist can be pretty hard stuff. Um, and to be honest, peacemaking doesn't always work. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are to live in peace with everyone. That's a pretty clear command, right? But Paul adds that all-important phrase, if it is possible, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes people will just not let it happen. Um, 
they have these inner passions in their own life representing something different than yours. Sometimes it's, it's a political issue. Sometimes it's even a racist issue. Sometimes there are uh, prejudices that are so deep that people don't even realize that they have them. Sometimes people don't even realize they, they possess hate themselves. Sometimes it's about um, harder things. Sometimes it's about forgiveness. You know, people are going through life with all kinds of things. And sometimes the trauma of some of the things that people are going through are beyond our quick understanding. And so we have to decide in the moment, are we willing to take people where they're at and love them right there? Even though they might not be responding to you the way you hope they would. But are you willing to just be loving to them because that's what Christ would do? Um, this mantle of being a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So the word uh, called means to be officially designated or to hold a particular rank. So when you become a team captain, for example, or the chair of a committee or something like that, that's, that's what that means. Um, uh, being a son of God isn't identical with being children of God. And it's an interesting distinction. A child of God is like being part of a family. And that's a very good thing. We want that identity of being a part of a family, right? Um, it's a good thing. But being a son of God is one who carries the family name from one generation to the next. Now, I, I think there could be some real easy confusion here that this is a male-female thing. <laughs> I think that we all get to be sons of God in this, in this context. Does that make sense? We all get to carry the name. We all get to carry the mantle, the mission of what God's doing. So when it comes to Beatitudes, it appears that Matthew 5 is uh, the most expansive uh, explanation of what the Beatitudes are. But they also appear in Luke. So where there are nine Beatitudes in Matthew, and I believe there are five or six in Luke, it's actually Luke that has the much more expanded version of the Beatitudes with a, a much more in-depth explanation. So we're going to turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 6 and read verses 27 through 35a. But I say to you uh, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, uh, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as for you, wish that others would uh, do to you, uh, do so to them. Um, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? Uh, for even sinners love those who love them. Um, and if you do uh, good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners uh, do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies uh, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So on the scripture side, we've got a pretty good context of what it means to be peacemakers. But let's look at the human side. You know, I had to think a lot about this. Um, was I going to be able to come up with a, a good example of what a peacemaker was? And this is where I wound up. Most of you know about the vineyard, that it was started by a man named John Wimber. But when I think about John Wimber, I think of a really, really good example of uh, a man who was committed in his whole life to this idea of being a peacemaker. I don't know that he called himself that, but his example sure would lend to it. So I'm going to take a little bit of time. I don't know that we've ever done this before. But we're going to give just a little bit of a history about John Wimber and then how this church was started. And let's see if this is indeed a really good example for what a real true peacemaker looks like. So he was raised in an atheist home, believe it or not. In fact, the prior four generations before John Wimber were all atheist families. Um, before he found his faith, John Wimber was absolutely in, immersed in worldly things. Uh, professionally, he was manager uh, of the band The Righteous Brothers. I, I, I see some irony there, by the way, but I'll just leave that alone. Um, and he had several addictions that he was fighting through and losing the battle with and was even at the extent where he was very close to divorce. In fact, he had already left his wife or his wife had left him. I can't remember which, but they were separated at the time. And, you know, uh, his wife and his three sons were living in one state and he was living in another and he was battling all of this stuff. Well, he received an invitation from a friend who was formerly in the music business with him from years prior and invited him to attend a Quaker church called the Yorba Linda Friends Church. Now, Yorba Linda is in Southern California. In 1963, John and his wife, Carol, actually started attending a small group there. Later that same year, John and Carol became Christians. Um, turns out he had quite the ability to draw people. <laughs> he was amazing at it. That church grew very quickly. In 1970, John was asked to join the pastoral staff there. During that, that time, he earned uh, a two-year certificate from Azusa Pacific College on biblical studies. In 1972, he became a co-pastor there. Uh, during the four years, John was on the co-pastoring team. Uh, probably because of his draw, he just... He could attract people for some reason or another. What a gifting. Um, but hundreds, perhaps thousands of people gave their life to the Lord. And that church grew expansively in a very short period of time. Well, in 1975, just a few years later, John was asked to establish the Charles E. Fuller Institute of Evangelism and Church Growth 
at Fuller Evangelical Seminary in Pasadena, California. Uh, his early yet extraordinary success in church growth made him just an obvious choice for this role. But during this time, while he was doing this, he had enormous influences from all kinds of other churches. Um, in fact, he visited with 27 other denominations and met with over 40,000 pastors during the time that he was at Fuller that first time. His um, ministry philosophy was uh, influenced by scholars that he had contact with, first from the Pentecostal and Charismatic Church backgrounds, and secondly from the non-Western students and professors uh, experiencing foreign missions. This is where Wimber was most influenced and where uh, his views of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit really started to form and take shape. Uh, John was also reading about the kingdom of God theology um, and George Eldon Ladd during this time. Though still connected with uh, that, that friend's church, John and Carol, along with the small group, which was, by the way, not so small anymore, um, began to experiment in the gifts of the Spirit. And increasingly, um, they could see the work of the Holy Spirit being done in their group. So eventually this led to leaving the Yorba Linda Friends Church, and this is where he got involved in Calvary uh, down in Southern California. Now, Chuck Smith who started Calvary, was a um, uh, conservative evangelical, I think, by best definition. And um, he didn't believe in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. So this was kind of an ironic choice um, for John Wimber at this point. But one of the things that Calvary tried to do was acknowledge the fact that people were working with and experimenting with um, what the Holy Spirit was doing. And so there were these things called the aglow. <laughs> Have you, any of you ever experienced Calvary and experienced that? Uh, Teresa and I uh, were actually part of the Calvary in, in Seattle, and they actually had an aglow service there. So I, I, I had kind of firsthand knowledge of what that looked like. Um, but still, the aglow part or the work of the Holy Spirit was starting to take on its own shape. It was starting to get bigger and bigger and bigger, if not even to the point where it was starting to become dominant. Well, there was this individual named Ken uh, Gullickson, and he was kind of running point on this aglow thing. And um, there were seven churches that were highly invested in this idea of welcoming the Holy Spirit into the setting. So they named themselves the Vineyard. And so the Vineyard initially was part of the Calvary Church, but it was the part of the Calvary Church that was interested in following the works of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this began to grow and grow, and finally there became kind of a division between Chuck Smith and John Wimber, and the net effect of it was the emergence of two separate churches. And so that was the start of the Vineyard Movement. So uh, Gullickson and Wimber kind of worked out that John Wimber would take the lead in this new endeavor. And within a year, 30 of the formerly Calvary churches moved over to the Vineyard Church. So it had a very, very big start as a young movement. From the very beginning, uh, in this earliest days 
um, the new of the new vineyard movement, Wimber instilled his learned values of caring for the poor, working for justice, and feeding the homeless and destitute against institutional injustice and racism. Um, that same year, Wimber was asked by a, his old friend from uh, Fuller um, to come back and teach another course. This one was called MC 510. As with everything else that Wimber touched, this thing took off like crazy. And the dean of the college uh, described this class as the most successful and the most controversial uh, course that Fuller ever, uh, ever had. Um, one of the things that was, was really specific about how this class was taught was Wimber would be praying for his students. He would be getting words for them. And as he was giving these words for his students, he would be going over and praying for them. And they would literally experience healing right then and there. And he would describe what was happening, what the Spirit of God was doing. And his students were learning in that kind of a format. So you can kind of see how it grew pretty fast. Um, let's see. So in order to put some structure to this emerging movement, because it was getting very fast, very quick, uh, John Wimber decided that he needed to define this idea of a genetic code, uh, something that would be like the baseline of what we could all agree was our, uh, d described our, our movement. And his earliest DNA was um, teaching and valuing scriptures, worship, small groups, um, the Holy Spirit and their giftings in service, training, ministry to the poor, evangelism, church planting, and ecumenical relationships or working with other churches. Uh, right from the very beginning, these were the core things, the core definitions of what the, the vineyard was. And as Wimber grew in understanding, we learn about um, how he was always willing to give the Spirit room to work. And at times this led to contradictions because there were so many hard and fast doctrinal things that he had had to encounter along the way, what the Holy Spirit was showing him often conflicted with these things. And so he was in this constant battle, and he eventually made this one of his greatest strengths. And he called this, this, con this constant battle the both and. <laughs> he had to live in the both and until he could decipher and understand the either-or. Um, and um, Wimber was also um, influenced by charismatic practitioners from all kinds of theological backgrounds. A dear friend of his was uh, Father Francis McNutt, a Catholic priest. Uh, he became a very close mentor. Uh, Dennis Bennett, an Episcopalian priest, was also a strong influence. And there were many, many others. Um, I loved to learn about this because we are connected at the hip <laughs> with a lot of other churches in Yakima. We're very closely connected in a lot of the projects and a lot of the programs that we're doing. And as we meet together on a monthly basis, the pastors learn a lot from each other and we grow from each other. And we get to see this wonderful thing about what the big C church 
is doing in Yakima in the community, and the Holy Spirit is, 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 is at the center of all of it. Um, sadly, John Wimber passed in 1997. Uh, in the years that followed, Vineyard had to work through a lot of development issues. Uh, responses would have to be based on biblical and theological frameworks that he had originally developed, but kind of chaos in the process. Uh, although national directors had been appointed since Wimber's death, no longer would one voice rule. Uh, instead, there would be a diverse corporate and communal decision-making process. Um, the management... Um, and further development would rely on dialogue, uh, group interaction, mutual biblical theological reflection, and um, it would also rely on prayer and uh, fasting and meditating. And, and um, what's emerged is a movement that can be national and even global work in all of the various cities, and now look at all of the complexities of what injustice looks like these days, which is a pretty tough subject when you think about it. Um, things like um, um, uh, um, sex trafficking, human trafficking, um, uh, caring for the poor is taking on a lot of different shapes beyond just providing services, but wanting to try to prevent some of the cyclical aspects of, of, of poverty in the community. Uh, breaking down barriers between people groups and immigration, looking at that. Um, so there's lots of things that kind of are in the ethics framework of what, what a kingdom of God theology would really look like. Um, Several years ago, Vineyard Yakima responded to an um, initiative called Mercy Response, which was developed to send volunteers, supplies, and uh, practical assistance to communities that were overwhelmed by hurricanes, tornadoes, and other flooding. Uh, in fact, we made at least three trips, maybe four, for Mercy Response. Three or four. Five. Okay, <laughs> we made five different trips. Um, and by 2008, a National Justice Task Force was created, uh, which focused on uh, assisting local vine vineyard congregations to pr pursue justice locally. Uh, this grew to become the Vineyard Justice Network, which I'm a part of now with two other people across the country. And so we form kind of the network that, that tries to provide assistance to churches that are trying to move into justice solutions for their communities. So the Vineyard Movement is best characterized now as a church living the future reality of the kingdom in the present day, even in the midst of all the suffering that's here now. I believe John Wimber was truly a great example of a peacemaker. I think by definition, he's the best I know of. Um, he sought to reconcile people to God, to each other, in the most aggressive way I could think of. And it was very important for him to do it right. He didn't rely on himself. He didn't rely on his own personal understanding. He reached out to as many as he possibly could 
and he worked in the framework of the body of Christ to be able to get it just right. Um, so I had this just amazing opportunity here. Um, I, I got an invitation uh, by the Society of Vineyard Scholars uh, to uh, submit a paper um, for their conference, which just happened in New Haven, Connecticut at uh, Yale Divinity. And um, I was to respond with a paper response to this new book that had just come out. Um, and the book was entitled, Living the Future, the Kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit in the Vineyard Movement. And um, it was by an individual that I actually knew. I went through the whole study and did all this research and didn't even realize until that morning when I sat there that I actually knew this guy and we had had several conversations and conferences before. Um, but the whole idea was this idea of the kingdom of God here and now and uh, what it looked like to be able to take all of our uh, DNA and unpack it in a community and where the body of Christ was actually doing justice collaboratively with other churches in a community setting. So it was a cool experience. But one of the things that I, gosh, I was just so taken by it, was I saw many young people. You know, one of the things we hope for is our next generation to have young people emerge as, as pastors. And so, so one generation is replaced by another and is replaced by another. And, and of course, that, that's healthy, right? So when we look at conferences at the national level that are taking place, we see a lot of older people, <clears throat> a, lot, a lot of very older people. <laughs> but uh, we're not seeing as much really young people. But when I went to this conference, if you can imagine a couple of hundred um, uh, scholars had come together, and these are all master level to doctorate level young people working on uh, trying to advance the kingdom of God, trying to advance what that looks like in the justice setting in various communities. Um, there is a, a hunger and a thirst that was so vibrant and so real and such a blessing. You know, all of the things that they're battling with in their minds, things uh, like um, uh, political positions and what it looks like to, uh, to be one thing in a community that doesn't look like that. So, um, you know, all kinds of diversity issues were, were at, at hand. But the long and short of it was that it gave me some real, real, real hope for the future of the Vineyard Movement. It gave me real hope that we're going to grow and we're going to be what we need to be in, uh, in communities here to come.